Recently, I was teaching a retreat with James Barris at Spirit Rock in California, the center that I'm part of. And he's one of the co-founders of Spirit Rock as well. And um, he was telling a story about my first retreat, which he was the teacher of. He was my first teacher back, back in the late 70s. I did a weekend retreat, and it was my first dive into the practice, a big weekend. And he was telling the story about how much I was struggling and what a difficult time I was having. And he, him being a new teacher at the time, he was feeling really bad that I was having such a difficult retreat. And he, we were friends, we had been friends at the time, and he really wanted me to have a good experience. And he was telling the story because over the years, he realized that that wasn't actually probably the most helpful attitude, was to want me to have a good experience, meaning a pleasant experience. Not just a good experience, meaning that you know lots of insight was arising. He wanted me to be happy. He wanted me to feel good in myself, and he didn't want to see me struggle. Now, you might think that that's actually a compassionate response, and it is, but it's not a fully compassionate response because he wanted to protect me from my pain. He wanted to protect me from my suffering. And so over the years, he's realized that actually... He needed to really allow me to have the experience that I was having and that he couldn't really protect me from my pain or from the suffering that I was having. He actually was very skillful at the time on that retreat because I was having such a hard time. I, um, it was only a day, really, like a day, you know, the full Saturday, and then we were going home on the Sunday. But I just, I just thought I had entered the hell realms and uh, just could hardly bear to be with myself. I couldn't really bear the, uh, the, the contact and the loneliness, the aloneness with myself. And I was probably kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> And, you know, like, what am I, I can't be here, i got to leave, you know, kind of pulling my hair out a bit. And he said, it's okay, it's okay. He said, just go for a walk and just relax and look at the, the leaves on the trees and, you know, smell the, the flowers and just relax. I mean, he didn't say it like that. He didn't say, relax. <laughs> he just said, you know, take a, take a little time and, and relax. And so I did. You know, I just took a break from the schedule, and I felt so much better. I did feel like, ah, yeah, I was really getting so wound up. So that was a very skillful response. But I thought it was interesting that he was actually telling this story about 30 years later, you know, of how he realized how much he wanted me to have a good, happy, easy experience, and that that's not possible we, we, we need to go through the experiences that we're going through. And that is what is supposed to happen. That is the, the awakening journey. 
that we are on. After that retreat, I really wondered why I would want to go back on another retreat. And maybe some of you have had a similar experience where you know, you, you, we come to these retreats and sometimes we go into so much inner pain and, and, and sometimes chaos and difficulty and really make contact with very difficult parts of ourselves and we stay. You know, there's no lock on the doors. You know, we're not, you know we don't imprison you here. We, we, we volunteer to keep going uh, and we come back. And, you know, it's like something, something seems to really get stirred in the heart. You know, we, there's a sense of inner knowing that this is right. Somehow we know it's right, even though it's hard at times, it's difficult at times. We may not understand why we're here or why we're doing it. It may not make sense on a rational level or a conscious level, but there's some part of us, there's something that knows this is what we need to be doing. And it's not for, not everybody has that kind of inner awakening that they would even come to a retreat, that they'd even put themselves in this kind of experience, and we know that. It's a very, very small percentage of people who would even enter into this kind of situation. But when we do, and we actually confront ourselves, and we confront direct reality as it is, something gets really stirred and we know we need to keep going. Some kind of inner awakening that, that keeps us going. And that was what happened for me. And I didn't know and I didn't understand. I couldn't make any sense of it, but I knew I had to go back. Something felt really good in myself, like I had really touched something that was new and exciting, even though it was painful and I really felt like I had very good support and guidance and that I could keep going and keep entering into it. So we may find that as we go through these days that we've been here, you know, it's not so easy. And some people reported that in the group, you know, the tiredness and the sleepiness and, you know, just the general kind of sense of dullness or... You know, sometimes not really knowing if this is the right time or the right place. You know, this is really very natural that this kind of thing arises as we begin to shift and settle into our time here. This really is the awakening of our journey. I'd like to read this um, poem uh, called Your Journey by Susan Florence, because I think she describes this very well. There is a journey awaiting you. It comes in truth and promise when you reach the point of not knowing who you are or where to go. This most precious but painful passage is the journey to yourself. You will travel a place never before visited, where you meet unspoken fears and unearth buried truths. You will climb high and perilous mountains, those that rise up from the inside of yourself. You will explore forgotten waters held deep in the sea of your soul. You will be stranded in the wilderness and find a way through pathless land. 
You will be lost before you are found. You will be empty before you are full. You will cry the deep sobs of the earth, and tears of rain will cleanse the house around your heart. In time, because life, like birth and death, knows its own time, your fears and struggles and unknowing will be transformed. You will become a mountain place where eagles soar. You will become a reflecting pool which sees and knows the mysteries of your life. Your heart will be light like a butterfly as you follow the current of its true desires. The flight of the honeybee will be yours as you seek the nectar of what brings sweetness to your daily life. Most of all, you will become who you truly are. Your life will hold truth and promise and meaning, and the heart of the heavens will hold your heart. So it's a perilous path that we're on, and we know that, and yet we choose that because something feels right, something feels good, something feels deeply connecting as we do this kind of work, this kind of practice together. And we really confront reality. And I think that's an interesting word, confronting, because it means that we are confronting something that we usually want to avoid or we usually want to turn away from. We have to confront, we have to go towards it towards those, encounter those strategies that really are well-developed to want to make us want to move away or to hide away or run away from our present experience or our immediate reality. So we are in this confrontation with ourselves and with those patterns and the conditioning and the, 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 all the ways that we've learned how to not be in direct contact with life and with ourselves. All the ways that we have kind of maybe hidden ourselves a little bit or or cocooned ourselves or, or tried to escape a bit from the realities of life. Because we know, somewhere in our heart knows that this is not the way to live as a human being that there is more to life, There's, we have a greater capacity for life and for freedom itself. We know that from a place of our own wisdom, from our own knowingness, our own inner intelligence that guides us, that directs us, that pulls us towards greater freedom, greater wisdom and clarity. So we come up against that which is difficult. We have to, because any way that we're not free, we're still bound. And, and we're going to feel the pressure, we're going to feel the limitation, we're going to feel the uh, contraction of that way of being when we're not fully free in ourselves. That's the karma of being a human being. In the Buddhist teachings, that's called dukkha. Dukkha, the, the, the pain or the unpleasant, the unsatisfactory quality of life. The dukkha. And it's such a great word. 
And I know that, you know, those of us who have been practicing for a while, we adopt these kinds of words because they just kind of say exactly what we might be feeling or experiencing when we say, that is dukkha. (laughs) You know, I'm really feeling a lot of dukkha. You know, because it just hits something where we're just... We're just in that which we can't really seem to get out at some particular time. The Buddha talked about three kinds of dukkha. The first one is dukkha dukkha. (laughs) Dukkha dukkha. And that is the dukkha or the pain of having a body. Just that pain of being in a human body, that aspect which we really can't change because we've got a physical body. And the body, is it, it's, it goes through the, the experience of birth and then aging and sickness and death and all the aspects, all those experiences incorporated in those four stages of life and death. And that's dukkha dukkha. And when we come and we sit, we really feel that. And as we get older, we really feel that, all the pains and the aches and all the you know, ways we're not you know, used to sitting and you know, being, feeling confined in our body and, and being ill or all the things that happen to us, the unexpected kinds of things that happen to us that create pain in the body. That's dukkha dukkha, and we can't change it. This is one of the aspects of dukkha that we actually come to terms with as we face the suffering, as we confront the suffering. We say, yeah, that's the way it is. I can't change that. So I have to find ways of being tender and caring and and ways of holding myself with a lot of love in that situation of having a human body. The second kind of dukkha is called sankara dukkha. And this means the oppressive nature of all the formations of existence continually arising and passing and impacting consciousness. The five senses and mind, thought, thought itself just arising and passing and arising and passing, sight, sound, taste, smell, touch, thoughts coming and going, constantly impacting us moment after moment after moment. And when we become very still, when we become very quiet, we can kind of feel, we can even sense this very quick arising and passing and rising, passing of those phenomena. And sometimes we can feel the dukkha of it. We feel that impact of it. For me, the most uh, the strongest experience I had with the, knowing the reality of this is when I spent time in India. And probably there are the, those of you who have been in India, and, and the whole the experience is so alive. The, the, the environment is just so alive, just teeming with life in every possible way. And, and the experience of being in that environment is so strong on the the body and the mind and the the senses because because the, the experiences there are almost to an extreme the smells and the the the, the sights the colors and the and the uh, the the touch on the skin the heat or the the harshness sometimes of the environment the dryness or 
or the the sounds of all the, the the noise or the bells or all the there's so much going on, and then consciousness just constantly uh, th- the thinking thinking consciousness just constantly trying to deal with all of this, and you can just feel how that's that there can just be at times such an unpleasant quality to that. I mean, I had such a love-hate relationship with India all the, the years that I, I went there because the, the body and the mind has to find a way to just keep surrendering and, and feeling how to be there, when, particularly in the West when we're, we're really pretty protected and pretty comforted here from a lot of that kind of thing. Unless you go into the city, and then, you know, in the city, you can experience that again. You know, just that, all the stimulation and the noise and the busyness, and, and it really can take a toll on the, 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 the body and the mind. So, this is called Sankara Dukkha, and also we can't change this. You know, this isn't a Dukkha that we can overcome. It's just, we just, it's finding a different relationship to how to be with that so that we're not in fear and resistance and anger and aversion, but there's a way that we open to it and allow it and become more uh, uh, unified with it so that we're not trying to uh, separate ourselves from it. We can't change it. So dukkha dukkha, the pain of having a, a body, sankara dukkha, all the, the oppressive nature of all the formations of existence. The third kind of dukkha is the kind of dukkha that we can change. This is where the actual transformation of our being happens. And this is called the parinama dukkha. And the parinama dukkha is the dukkha or the pain that arises from holding on to things that are changing. All that, those arising and passing formations, moment to moment to moment, the, the sense of ourself, of the, the one who, who wants and doesn't want things to be a certain way, the formation of the ego self, gets in there and tries to manipulate these conditions of life to suit oneself, to suit myself. And this is the suffering. This is the dukkha that arises when I don't kind of flow into the rhythm of life itself. When I'm in, when I, when I become a separate being and, I, and then I get involved in resistance and aversion or grasping, wanting, the whole controlling and manipulation that happens in my being. In another way, we might say this is the pain of having a mind. You know, it's a psychological pain that arises from our confusion about the way things are. It arises from an unwise view, a view that thinks that I am separate from life, that I'm a separate being, and that it's happening out there, and somehow I have to isolate myself so I'm not impacted by things, or I have to find a way to actually get in there, out there, and create and control and, and, and manage things to suit me so that I feel better, so that I have a better experience. 
a little bit what like James wanted to do, kind of try to help me a little bit so that I'd, I'd have a little bit better experience. In this unwise view, we're also not seeing that anything or any experience at all is not going to ultimately be satisfying for us. And it's not going to be satisfying because it's going to change. Because we can't hold on to it and keep it the way we want it to be. All things have the nature to be born, to age, to, to decay, and to age, and to pass away, to die. To die away. All things in this world, in this nature are made of that same characteristic of impermanence, transience. The nature of all conditioned phenomena is unsatisfying. And I think that as we practice, as we go deeper into our meditation and our experience, we start to really get a sense of that, that we can't really hold on to anything, but that when we do hold on, we suffer. And that, in fact, that is where the suffering arises. This particular form of dukkha, this suffering, that when we begin to really work with our mind and, and understand the nature of that grasping and how it arises and takes form, we can begin to transform that. This is what we do in the practice. This is from a friend who um, sent me this email about her um, eight-year-old grandson, Seth. She said, so this is the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth. After all the build-up and the anticipation, this was around Christmas, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling, and he said, It's all the presents. They take you up and then they drop you. He really understood that he'd been caught and that they couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there is still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. And then she said, and we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and nearly not as much of that as they promise. And she said, it took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. (laughs) Things take you up, and then they drop you. Isn't that what we find is true? But it takes some attention paying attention to begin to see this more clearly, to begin to understand it more clearly, to have some sense of how this mechanism works so that we're just not bound up in it, that this pattern, this, this way of being just controls us, that we become that, that we don't have any sense of control outside of our minds, grasping and aversion and you know sometimes I get the image of you know just being swung uh, the, the, the tail something's just swinging me around and around and I you know I, I can't uh, I don't have any control 
So we have this very uh, beautiful tool, this basic tool that the Buddha uh, awakened us to, which is the tool of mindfulness, the tool of sati, which is an aspect of our consciousness that Catherine began talking about last night, that self-reflective consciousness that can actually look back and say, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm really getting caught up in grasping right now. I'm really getting caught up in wanting or aversion. We can actually know our experience and then be able to track it, to pay attention to it, so that we can start to make some changes. We can begin to do things differently, not be so bound up. This really is the tool that helps us move out of our confusion, out of the distortion, out of this this unwise view, this distorted view that we have about reality where we're not really seeing things very clearly that in, 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 in very much this not seeing things clearly is not really sensing that we are also nature, just as everything is nature. That every aspect of our being and what makes us a person is changing moment to moment to moment to moment. Our thoughts and our feelings and our sensations and our sights, sounds, tastes, smells, the feelings of the skin, it's changing. And we can turn our mindfulness towards this process that we are and begin to see, well, what's really going on here? Who am I? I take myself to be a solid, separate, isolated being, separate from the rest of nature. I'm here and nature's out there and other people are out there. We can then inquire we can investigate into the truth of that view, the truth of that perception. Is it really that way? Am I really so separate, isolated, disconnected? Mindfulness, this beautiful aspect of consciousness, allows us to begin to know the truth of who we are. We, we tur- with this tool is a tool for investigation, a tool for inquiry. And it means in order to use this tool, we need to be here in the present. Because if we're caught up in the past or we're getting caught up in the future and we don't have a sense of being here, then we're not, this tool of mindfulness is not accessible. Mindfulness means awareness. It means presence. It means here-ness, here and now-ness. So when we, 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 we practice, this is what we cultivate, coming back here. We've been talking quite a lot about present-centeredness, being present, what it means to be present. Because we have to get here to really begin to use the tools But the irony is that we actually use the tool of mindfulness. We're cultivating this tool of mindfulness to get ourselves here more (laughs) so that we can see even more clearly. When the mindfulness has some quality of continuity to it, this is called concentration, where we're mindful for many moments 
in a row over a period of time and the mind goes into a concentrated or focused state which is mindful and concentrated. This is a very sharp tool for investigation, for inquiry. So much of the practice that we do is the cultivation of the mindfulness and the concentration. Again, not for a means to an end so that we are mindful and concentrated beings, but so that we can actually have this this access to this tool of our consciousness in order to investigate more deeply into our experience for deeper and deeper understanding and insight into freedom itself, into who we are so that we can experience greater dimensions of freedom. In that way, it's actually a, a kind of a, you might say, a long road. Because getting here and kind of being awake is where we need to start from. <laughs> you know, and there's a lot of times we may think that the path is, is the, the end result of the path is to get here, and then we're, you know, we're free, we're here. But that's the beginning of the path. That's where it all starts. Once we're here, then we can start to take a look at the territory and begin to examine this to understand it and to get deeper insight into the nature of this existence. And that's where it really starts to get interesting. <coughs> because we begin to examine territory that is unfamiliar. It's unknown to the conceptual mind. We begin to enter into the mystery, the mystery of this existence, of this life that which we don't know. We haven't formulated ideas and concepts and, and beliefs about that because we haven't been there before. <laughs> we haven't really explored there before. So it's kind of exciting. It's kind of mysterious. And part of us, you know, just really feels drawn to know that. That which I could call consciousness itself. Or... Awareness itself, the, the mind that is awake, the mind that is bright and conscious. And what, is, what happens then as we explore life from that location where consciousness is already awake? This is what's interesting. This is, the, this is the, where the journey gets you know, really juicy. For us. So mindfulness is, um, is really just functional. It's a functional tool. It's nothing that's mystical or you know, esoteric. It's just it's functional. It's a factor of mind that arises that really allows us to, in the, in the, in the text it says, it, it tethers the attention to an object. It, the mindfulness focuses in on something, it kind of tethers it in order for us to see. Because otherwise the mind is restless, it's slippery, it's agitated, we can't see in that state. So when we're mindful, the attention is focused. It may be just for an instant, or maybe longer than a few instances, but when the mind is settled, and the mind is still for that moment where we're mindful, we can actually see what's going on. It gives us the clarity when we have mindfulness. 
And it really allows us to more deeply come into contact with what's arising, with what's being presented. So, so the mindfulness really is this kind of tethering. You can, um, if you think about um, eating a meal, we haven't, re- we haven't talked about eating meditation yet, but many of you have been introduced to eating meditation. And when you really have the intention to be present for your food, and you take the time to actually lift the fork and put the food into your mouth and chew the food and taste the food with mindful attention, it's a whole different experience. <laughs> I mean, have you, have you had that when, you're, when you really are tasting something? Sometimes we use a raisin to do eating meditation with. And we put the raisin in your mouth and you just feel the texture and let the raisin just kind of roll around your tongue and the saliva starts to um, come out of, in, out of the glands and starts to digest the uh, beginning of the digestion of the raisin. You could feel all that and it's very fluffy and juicy and then the, the raisin goes on the back of the tongue and then you really feel this desire to want to bite into it. And, and then just hold that desire for a moment as you just feel this wonderful texture of this fluffy raisin in the mouth. And then, then you bite. And then this sweetness just fills the mouth. There's all this sugar and all this sweetness and all this delight. And you just feel the this, this sweetness in your mouth for a while and then it just starts to trickle down your throat. And you feel all that sweetness and then want more. Oh, that's so wonderful. I want more of that sweetness. I mean, we don't often have experiences like this because we're either thinking about the past or planning or agitated or worried. We're not here. So the mindfulness really allows us to make contact so we can know something deeply know something in a way that we may have never known that thing before. And it, cre- and it brings about a certain kind of interest and, and connection and curiosity in that thing that we're exploring, that we're being with. It opens up a world. It opens up a new world for us. It's like entering into the world, like, like entering into the world of the raisin, you know, where you, where me and the raisin are no longer separate. I am the sweetness of the raisin. You know? And we begin to just expand. Our, we, we become so much more expansive rather than this very small, limited sense of ourself, of someone who's sitting here knowing there's a raisin in the mouth, but we have things to work out. You know, I got to work out, I got a phone call that's you know, coming up or whatever it is. You enter into a whole new world. Without mindfulness, the mind is slippery. It's restless. There's really no control. The mind's just rushing from idea to idea to the past to the future. We're trying to figure things out or we're trying to um, uh, uh, figure out how we can be happy in our lives or get rid of this pain or this suffering and it's we're so caught up in the in the mind and we may feel agitated and worried and unsettled in ourselves and we we have this sense of that there's really no ground underneath and there's no foundation there's a real sense of instability and the mind's just all over the place 
And in this state, the mind is prey to grasping, to identification, looking for some kind of stability out there, looking for something to hold on to so that I can feel settled again. I can get all my ducks in a row because then I can feel at rest. This is not the the mind of the Buddha. Which, as we as we work with the mindfulness, we start to feel more of that inner stability, and that 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 settledness, that stillness that starts to come as we are more and more here. The Buddha compared an untrained mind to a flapping about of a fish taken from water and thrown onto dry land. Can you just imagine that? You know, the fish out of its element, just flapping, flapping, you know, trying to, you know, get back to the water or whatever. It's not where it's supposed to be. It's the untrained mind. Shantideva, uh, who um, was, his words were translated in a book called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. This particular one translated by Stephen Batchelor. He used another metaphor for the untrained mind. He said, in this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my own mind. In this world, unsubdued and crazed elephants are incapable of causing such harms as the miseries of the deepest hell which can be caused by the unleashed elephant of my own mind. Can you relate to that? (laughs) He says, but if the elephant of my mind is firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness, all fears will cease to exist and all virtues will come into my hand. The mind firmly bound on all sides by the rope of mindfulness. So that this trained mind that is firmly bound, this is the mind that's trained in mindfulness and concentration. Two of the factors on the Eightfold Noble Path of the Buddha. This is our tool that we need for deep inquiry and investigation. Mindfulness really is this window. It's kind of a window that opens through which we can see clearly for a moment. It's like a space or a crack in the force of our habitual habits and patterns. It just everything in that moment just stops just for a second or maybe longer so that we can see what's happening. We can know how things are, what things are in that moment when the window just opens. And there is knowingness, this knowingness which is clear perception, knowing the way things are. This other translation for insight meditation or vipassana, to know things as they are. 
So this window opens into clear perception. And it may be, you know, we, we, we have such lovely sounds here at Gaia House. You know, and just as you're sitting, there's just for a moment you hear the sound of the birds, all different tones and orchestrations. And just that moment, the mind opens. The mind opens in mindful attention and just hear the sound even before the concept of bird arises. But yet the memory bank is filled with all kinds of language and so the word comes, bird. Or it might be a pleasant bird sound. But yet there's not much more Papancha, there's not much more association around that. It's just the bare perception, the pure perception of just that sound at the ear door in that awake consciousness. Or it might be seeing the, one of the beautiful flowers where the mind just stops for a moment and you just the seeing, the seeing of the colors and the, the light on the petals of the flower and maybe the aroma of the smell comes. It's just the pure perception, bare perception of just what's happening. This mindful, the opening, the window that opens into clarity, just the way things are. Before the arising of, oh, yeah, I really like that rose. I wonder what kind it is. I'd like to plant that in my garden. Oh, my garden, it's really drying up right now. I wonder if anybody's really watering my garden. I did ask somebody to water my garden, and yet, oh gosh, maybe I better make a phone call and check on that. Well, we've just been carried away. (laughs) Now, that can happen with mindful attention. We can watch the whole thing happening, and with enough clarity and mindfulness, maybe we'll see uh, Maybe I don't really need to make that phone call right now before you actually wind up at the phone booth. You know, and you say, oh, yeah, that's just my mind. You know, I'm just feeling some worry, some concern, some agitation. I can let that go, come more into the present moment, and you're back again. So the mindfulness can track it all, even the thought, even the projections, the plans, the worries, and all that. It doesn't mean because that's happening we're not being mindful. We are mindful of the thinking mind, mindful of the the stream of consciousness. And we're mindful because then we can make some clear decision about whether it feels appropriate to follow that or not. Is it appropriate for this particular moment and the conditions of which I am in to act out on that right now? And when I'm present and I'm conscious, I can make those choices rather than finding myself in my car driving home because I'm so worried about what's happening at home. And this has happened. People do that, you know. Then they they come back, you know, after being out about five, ten miles, and they go, oh, gosh, I don't need to be doing this. And then they come back. (coughs) Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you're good yogis. (laughs) I found out on my first three-month course that I did at IMS after, after the, the, we started talking again that one of my friends who was sitting with me, this was in the early days, back in the early 80s, um, that he was going out down to town, walking into town about three miles once a week, getting pizza, <laughs> at, the pizza at the pizza joint, you know, and then coming back. 
I mean, I just, I just didn't really get how that fit into you know, <laughs> the practice. But somehow he was actually really cool with it. He didn't have any judgment about himself doing that at all. He said, oh, yeah, it was great. You know, <laughs> just going out and getting some pizza down at the pizza joint. So I don't know. People have all kinds of ideas <laughs> about the practice. <laughs> So in that moment of mindfulness, we really are letting go of our preconceived ideas of what we think we know or what should be happening or what we understand about something. We're just open to the experience to see what new can be revealed, what, what, what can be revealed in a way that we've never experienced before in this immediacy of this experience. A Roshi, there was a Roshi once who said, those who are awake live in a state of constant amazement. Because every moment is new. Every moment is fresh. There's no preconceived overlay on top of the experience. There's a quality of being open to what is without bringing the burden of the past, that all our baggage from the past and saying, ah, let me see if I can experience this in a new way and learn something new, something that I haven't discovered before. This is from Ryokan, the great um, Zen master poet, uh, sage. said, the bamboo grove in front of my hut, exclamation mark, Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. Every day I see it a thousand times. Something's new there. Because there's no filter from the past. This quality of openness that we can bring to our experience is like emptying a cup of old stale water so that we can put fresh water into the cup. Ajahn Chah, the great Thai forest master in our tradition, when he was asked what greatest hindrance his students had, he said, opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions. Then you will see. Empty your minds of the past, of the burden of the past. Which, which carries us into futurizing and fantasizing and the ideas of the future. Empty your mind, and then you will see. We're making space open. We feel and experience this quality of openness. And it's not just a concept. It's not just a nice idea. We can actually feel energetically an openness in our being which brings about a certain sense of lightness and ease in ourselves, in this openness. When we're, when we're not, you can almost sense it in yourself, you know, kind of a way we might feel kind of twisted and kind of 
guarded and sort of confined and contracted and burdened in some way, as opposed to at times, and it happens on retreat as we, particularly after a few days, we we just kind of feel different in our core and in our chest and our heart and our arms and our shoulders feel different and there could just be a more of an openness at times not always because we've got this journey that we're on and, and we may go into some of the difficulty and the darkness but then at times we come out and we feel a little different feel more open and in this openness we feel what arises is the quality then of curiosity and interest because the mind isn't so full of preconceived ideas. So then we become kind of curious. Oh, I'm seeing things and experiencing things that are new, that are fresh. We feel interested because we don't know. One of my teachers, Hamid Ali from the Diamond Heart School that Catherine and I are involved with, He says, we want to open the wrapping of the gift because we want to see what's inside. We're curious, you know, like kids, you know. We we see a present that's all wrapped up with a bow and pretty colors, and what's inside? I want to know. That's that quality of curiosity. We start to feel that. We feel drawn out. We feel pulled out because we're curious. And this, this, this curiosity and interest and openness, it, it starts to act like fuel on our path, on our journey. It fuels the movement forward, towards that, those dimensions of greater openness and greater freedom. We, we're drawn by that curiosity, by that not knowing then the knowing, when we're very caught up in what we know, the, our preconceived ideas, we can feel quite, quite limited. And actually we can feel a little bored or, you know, not very interested because we know. You know, I, I know already, so what do I need to look at that for? Or, you know, it's like, it's like reading the menu and saying, I don't want anything before you actually even taste the food. And we, we do that in life. We kind of read the menu and say, nah, I don't want that. But what about the experience? <laughs> We're actually having the experience and that see what happens then in that quality of not knowing. In a way, you are the gift that is being unwrapped. I am the gift that is being unwrapped. So there's something interesting something exciting, something new that's being revealed there in that quality of openness. And it may be fear even, it may be fear that's inside. And yet, with this attitude of openness and mindfulness and some some ability, some capacity to be present, I can even hold the fear. And then look at that. Or the anger or the impatience, or the envy, or the jealousy, or the hate, or whatever's in that gift, that too, can we, can we be interested in that, curious about that, as we keep unwrapping and unwrapping? This openness is like tapping a fresh water spring. The openness itself 
empowers the unfolding journey, the unfoldment of our being. This is called the Sabbath. It's from Denise Levitov. Don't say, don't say there is no water to solace the dryness at our hearts. I have seen the fountain springing out of the rock wall and you drinking there, and I too, before your eyes, found footholds and climbed to drink the cool water. The woman of that place, shading her eyes, frowned as she watched, but not because she grudged the water, only because she was waiting to see we drank our fill and were refreshed. Don't say, don't say there is no water. That fountain is there among its scalped green and gray stones. It is still there and always there with its quiet song and strange power to spring in us up and out through the rock. Up and out through the rock. This rock that we, sometimes we feel like we, that, that rock. There's nothing that can come out, or we can't access anything in ourselves. But the water, the fountain is there. The spring is there. When we open to our experience, to the the present quality of here and now, we learn this, we work with this in our practice. And we are empowered because this mindfulness, this open crack in, our, in the habitual patterns is already an expression of our awake consciousness. That mindfulness itself is the awake consciousness. It is the light of consciousness. It is as if it's a light that is illuminating our situation. It, 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 it allows us to see in a way that we haven't seen before. It may not be in that moment of awake consciousness that we are totally free, but it is as if there is a layer of our consciousness that is free. It may be that we are seeing our reactivity in that moment, our anger, our aversion, our greed, our our pain, but there is an aspect that is not reactive to it. There is an aspect that is allowing, that is open, that is caring and tender towards what we see. That is the mind, mindfulness itself brings that quality to our experience. Just in the presence of what is occurring without the reactivity in that moment, something is not reacting. It's saying, ah, That's the way it is. There's the anger, there's the fear, there's the pain, there's the happiness, there's the joy. That's the way it is. There's no aversion, there's no grasping, just clarity, clear seeing in that moment of what is. And this response of being present and clear is not a response of the ego, of the small self, of the small limited self, but it is a selfless response. 
it is arising already it is arising from the goodness from the wisdom from the innate nature of who we are this moment of clarity And this is always accessible to us. Just one moment of present connection. One moment of mindfulness. We're just talking about an instant. Not mindful for an hour, not mindful for a day, just mindful right now. And now. (laughs) And now. And if you lost it the last moment, Now, now. The beauty is that we always have the next opportunity. As long as we are breathing, as long as we are still alive in our body, we have another opportunity to be here, to be awake, to pay attention, to be oriented towards our wakeful consciousness. So maybe I'll end with one more poem. It's called The Song from Naomi Shihab Nye, who is a Palestinian-American poet, one of my favorite female poets. From somewhere, a calm, musical note arrives. You balance it on your tongue, a single ripe grape, till your whole body glistens. In the space between breaths, you apply it to any wound, and the wound heals. Soon the nights will lengthen. You will lean into the year, humming like a saw. You will fill the lamps with kerosene, knowing somewhere a line breaks, the city goes black, people dig for candles in the bottom drawer, but you will be ready. You will use the song like a match. It will fill your rooms, opening rooms of its own, so you sing, I did not know my house was this large. I did not know my house was this large. Let's sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.